What gives you joy? What makes you sing? What gives you peace? When do you feel whole? When do you feel safe? When do you feel like you're going to be okay? You know, these are important questions. These are important questions that we spend the the great part of our lives trying to answer. And we make our decisions, be they big decisions or small decisions, where to live, what kind of a career to pursue, how we vote. All these things we do because we want to feel whole and we want to feel safe. Now, Ephesus, as we recently saw during our study through Acts, Ephesus was famous for its cult of Diana and for its thriving business selling idols, cultic charms which were said to be imbued with magical powers that promised protection against danger. They were the means by which these people, if they would just fork out and pay, would find joy, find security, find peace. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus came to Ephesus, and Jesus liberated the Ephesian believers from these futile ways of living. But you know, a lifelong habit and the patterns of thinking in which these people uh, were turning to these idols in order to find joy, peace, wholeness, lifelong habits and patterns of thinking, which are also daily reinforced by the constant threat, the promises, the temptation, the lures of the world. These things are not quickly changed. And so Paul's aim here is to rebuild their joy, their peace and safety from the ground up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he does that in three ways. He rebuilt for the Ephesians their joy and their peace and their safety on the foundation of Jesus Christ by first showing them the glorious inheritance that they have in Jesus. The glorious inheritance that they have in Jesus. Now, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 divides into two parts. In verses 3 through 14, Paul told the Ephesians that believers through faith in Christ, they have every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So that's what Paul instructed the people of Ephesus, that they, through faith in Christ and in Jesus, they have every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The second part of chapter 1 is verses 15 through 23, and this is where Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that they may gain a deeper understanding of the hope to which he has called you which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
So Paul is telling them, believing what Jesus has done, and then coming to a deeper understanding of what we have in Christ is how we find joy. That is how we find peace and security, safety in life. And in this connection, you remember that in verses 11 through 14, Paul talked about the great inheritance. And there in verses 11 through 14, Paul meant by inheritance the fact that we, as we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become the inheritance that Jesus receives from the Father. You remember the great promise in Psalm 2 where the Father promised the anointed one, Messiah, ask of me and I will give you the nations. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Father gives you, Father gives me as inheritance to his Son. And in that connection, we saw that you, you are Jesus' treasured possession. That's what you are. When Jesus sees you, he does not see what you see. He does not see what other people know about you. When Jesus looks at you, he sees treasure, his inheritance. And so that's what Paul meant by inheritance in verses 11 through 14. And now in verses 15 through 23, he means by glorious inheritance, he means what God bestows upon the saints. So he has a different sense of inheritance in this passage. In verses 11 through 14, you are the inheritance that God gives to his son. In verses 15 through 23, The glorious inheritance is the wonderful blessing that God bestows upon the saints. Now, first of all, note that word, the saints. That's a plural. You know, you may be thinking, okay, so what? Big deal. Actually, it is a big deal because, you know, you may know that in the ancient cultures, Um, across many different cultures, the lion's share of inheritance was reserved only the oldest son, uh, if not the entirety of the father's estate. Why? Because if you divide the inheritance among many children, within a generation or two, the family wealth is diluted. So the only way to keep the family wealth intact is to not divide the inheritance among all the children, but give it to the firstborn son. And to the rest, you may get a token gift, but the lion's share of the inheritance goes to the firstborn son. And if you're a daughter, if you're a woman, well, forget about it. Because why would the father give you his property only to be added to another family? So that's the, that was the reality in ancient cultures across different kinds of cultures. But our Heavenly Father, He has inexhaustible riches. And because of that, from our eldest brother Jesus to the very last and the least of His brothers and sisters, they all receive from our Father's abundance lavish 
inheritance. And that's why the plural is so important. Glorious inheritance which God is bestowing upon the saints. Now you may be thinking to yourself, I, but I am the least of the least, the least in God's kingdom. But out of the Father's abundance, there is glorious inheritance that you can expect. To put it more to the point, let me put it this way. You, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have joy, peace, and safety that unbelievers know nothing about. You know, it's extremely illuminating to hear from very successful people who say that nothing satisfies them. You know, on the one hand, we want to say, you have everything, what are you complaining about? But you know, it's not that they are spoiled, or it's not that, it's not just because they're spoiled. You know, what are they saying? What they're saying is that they give their lives to idols, only to find out that their idols lie to them. They gave their lives to their idols only to find out that these idols had no power to deliver what they promised. That's why we hear the most enormously successful people say, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not happy. But you and I, we have in Christ a solid foundation to build our lives upon. Everything that our souls yearn for, which the unbelievers anxiously chase their whole life without ever finding it, you and I, we have in abundance in Christ, his glorious inheritance. And that brings us to the second point. His power over death and life. His power over death and life. Now, how do we know that we have what the unbelievers do not have? How do we know that we have in abundance a glorious inheritance? This is how Paul answers the question. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead for you. So look at verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? So what Paul says here is that Jesus' resurrection is God's power toward us. Jesus' resurrection is God's power for our benefit. And we can think about how Jesus' resurrection is God's power for our benefit in three ways. First, Remember Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Paul tells us there that Jesus was raised for our justification. Our faith unites us to Jesus. 
And because we are by faith united to the Lord Jesus, his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was God vindicating his son and declaring his son because, you see, the charge and accusation against Jesus was that he was a sinner who deserved to die. That was the accusation from the earthly authorities. But when God raised his son, Jesus, from the dead, that's God vindicating his son and declaring that he is righteous and he deserves life. And because we have been united to Jesus by faith, and because we have also been raised with Jesus, we receive the same verdict from the Father. The Father looks at you, you who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus, and he says, all accusations of sin and failure, rebellion, are wrong. They don't count. But because you are in my Son, you are righteous, and you deserve life. And so that's the first way in which God's power with which he raised Jesus from the dead is his power towards the saints for their benefit. Secondly, notice here how Paul piles on power words. Verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Uh, that's a Greek word there is dunamis. Immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working. The Greek word there is energeia. If dunamis means power, energeia means that the working, the active accomplishing of a goal. And Paul continues, according to the working of his great might. That phrase, great might, uh, is actually two Greek words for power translated as great might. The first word is kratos, which means might. And the second word is iskus, strength. So what Paul does in this verse is piles on four power words. And the combined use of these four power words Make a strong point. God exerted his immeasurable power to raise Jesus from the dead and to destroy death. And with that same power, God guides us from our calling to consummation. Every second of our lives, from our first breath, to the last, are under the powerful lordship of Christ. Thirdly, God, according to the working of his great might, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, what Paul means by all rule and authority and power and dominion, he has in mind the spiritual and the earthly powers the Ephesians once served before Jesus liberated them. 
these spiritual and earthly authorities that both promised them joy, security, that threatened them. These things that they used to serve, Jesus has liberated them from. But not only that, Christ so clearly outclasses and so clearly overpowers them that they cannot any longer rely on them for what Christ alone can do and what Christ alone can give. Nevertheless, we still live in this world where all rule and authority and power and dominion, be they spiritual powers or earthly powers, they often set themselves against the Lord and they threaten us. So what would Paul have them know? Paul would have them know that Jesus is so absolutely our Lord. And also, he is so absolutely the Lord over these rules, authorities, and dominions and powers that as one of our beloved catechism uh, puts it, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And you see, this is how Paul is building from, from ground up the source, the foundation of the Ephesians' joy, their peace, their safety. First, his glorious inheritance. Second, Jesus' power over death and life. What a sweet comfort this is. Let the world rage against the Lord and against his people. You are so safe in his immeasurable power that Jesus is not only your Lord, he's also the Lord over all these pretenders, usurpers, that they cannot do one extra thing than what Jesus allows them to do, and not even a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father. Thirdly and finally, Jesus' gracious rule Jesus' gracious rule. So Jesus, he has absolute lordship, dominion, and authority over all things. So in verse 22, Paul tells us, and he, the Father, put all things under his feet. Now, Paul is alluding to Psalm 110. Uh, Verse 1, for example, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the message of Psalm 110 is that Jesus is David's Lord, whom the Father has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places and has put all things, meaning his enemies, under his feet. So Psalm 110 shows Jesus in his capacity to bring his immeasurable power in judgment against his and against our enemies. So can I put it to you this way? If you read Psalm 110, you will be shocked at how violent the words are. It talks of slaughter, war. And so the picture of Jesus there is a mighty warrior 
who conquers over his enemies, and he puts his foot on the neck of his foes. And the neck of his foes are his footstool. Jesus has absolute dominion and authority, lordship over all things. But Jesus exercises his dominion and authority in an entirely different manner over his people. And so Paul says, God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, what Paul is getting at is this. The body is organically connected and united to the head. And because the body is organically one with the head, connected and united to the head, the body, the church, is most certainly not under Jesus' feet as his footstool. And the body of Christ enjoys an entirely different kind of relationship with Jesus. And Paul brings this out by calling the church the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, among scholars, this has proven to be a very difficult expression. Um, And I think sometimes they feel that this is a very difficult expression because of what it's saying. And I do want to say this very carefully. Uh, and it's really important for you to follow the flow of thought because if you lose the flow of thought here, uh, what I'm about to say and what Paul says here would sound very strange. But when Paul says that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, what he means is this. The Son of God, in His absolute dominion and authority and power, He fills all things. And yet He, He feels empty. Jesus considers Himself imperfect. And Jesus does not feel complete without the church. That's what Paul is saying, the mighty Lord, he who is all-sufficient, lacks nothing and needs nothing, who governs and rules and has dominion over everything, he feels incomplete without you. He does not feel whole without you. And so if we were to ask Jesus, What brings you joy, Jesus? What makes you feel whole? Jesus would answer, my bride, my brothers and sisters, my body, the church, my flock, I am not whole without them. That's what Paul is saying. He who has no need, he who lacks nothing, he who is perfect and complete, he who is all-sufficient, he has so bound his heart to ours that he does not consider himself whole 
complete or perfect without you. I mean, just imagine that. What do you think about yourself when you come to pray? I think very often the answer is you don't feel very good about yourself, do you? Because what is so present in your heart and your mind are your weakness and your failings, your stumblings. Yet again, another disobedience, another way that you have let Jesus down. So when you come before Jesus, you don't feel all that good about yourself. Isn't that true? But Jesus' attitude and his heart towards you is so different. He who considers you his treasure of possession, he looks at you and says, I am not okay without you. I am not whole. I am not perfect. I am not complete without you. And that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, to discover Jesus' deep love for them. And that's what you and I must discover too. Perhaps some of us for the first time to discover how Jesus loves you. Yes, you come before Jesus and if you have any shred of integrity or honesty in your heart, you cannot feel good about yourself. (laughs) But Jesus looks at you and says, you are my treasure. With you, I am well pleased. Can I put it this way? Jesus says to you, you complete me. That's the love of Jesus. And maybe you have never discovered this. And maybe you need to discover this for the first time. Others of us, we need to discover this for the thousandth time, if that's what it takes, but in a deeper, more profound way, how deeply, how earnestly, how sincerely, how graciously Jesus loves you. Because it's only then, only then we will know, only then we will feel that Jesus is our joy, Jesus is our peace, and Jesus is our security. And being so satisfied with Jesus we will build our lives from ground up upon Jesus. And it's that life, and only that life, that will endure. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immeasurable power with which you raised Jesus. And even now you are guiding, watching over us, providing, protecting, and leading us. So we thank you and praise you. But most of all, we thank you for the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose grace, in whose forgiveness, in whose love, we have security, we have joy. And I pray, O Lord, that your mercy, your grace would so fill the hearts and the minds of your people here this morning that whatever shame, whatever guilt they carry in their heart will be laid at the foot of the cross and receive from the Lord's broken body and shed blood forgiveness, love, and strength. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.